Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok, and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Inside the Hive. This is Joe Hagan with my co-host, Emily Jane Fox. Hi, Emily. Hello. Happy this week. Happy this week. All of March feels like the random month. You're just trying to get over it. It's the Wednesday of months. You know, it's very weird. I guess all of quarantine or whatever this period we now call it has felt like I, I never quite know what day it is or what week we're in. But for some reason, the past two weeks have felt particularly like that. I don't know if you feel like that too, but I can never remember what day it is. And I ha- I like every week, I think that that weekend is the April 1st weekend, is the Easter weekend. Um, and yeah. every week it's not that weekend. So I think I we're finally getting there. Um, but yeah, this does feel sort of like the lost month, or at least I feel lost in this month. I agree. Well, we're in that weird kind of process of slowly but surely coming out of the pandemic times. We don't really know where we're at in all of it, but we feel it coming on. And I do wonder whether we'll actually, we'll know what day of the week it is and what the date is even six months from now, but we'll see. We'll hope. That's the, the hope that we have is that we'll know what time it is. At any one moment. You you know what time it is, Joe. It is time for your excellent interview this week. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what we have to look forward to? Well, we have, you know, a cable news superstar, Don Lemon. Don Lemon, fearless uh, newscaster of CNN. He's got a really powerful new book out called This is the Fire, What I Say to My Friends About Racism. And of course, he's the only... African-American newscaster in primetime cable news. So he's got a powerful voice. He has a really powerful personal story to tell. And uh, he talks about, uh, as you will hear, um, how this book sort of poured out of him after the events of last summer. You know, we've had, uh, we had Charles Blow on here, the columnist from the Times. We've had John Batiste and all of them, uh, African-American men talking about the transformational experiences of last summer. And out of that come books, come art, uh, music, in John Batiste's case. And and with Don Lemon, this sort of um, personal kind of review of his own experiences with, experiences with racism, but also his uh, solutions for it and um, kind of an education and a review of where we are 
in all of that. And it's, um, of course, politics has something to do with it. And he talks about Donald Trump, but also, you know, the book is sort of a riff on or an ode to James Baldwin. And, uh, you know, there's, there's more depth to Don Lemon than you might have just assumed from thinking he's just a, a guy reading the, the, the teleprompter or something, which he's not. But, um, and so it's, we had a really engaging conversation. I have to say, I've known Don for almost 10 years. Is that possible? And what I have come to know about Don professionally as someone who was his colleague at CNN for many years and personally as someone who became a friend of his, he is, I really think he's the most fearless person in cable news. And I say that because he's one of the very few anchors who tells it like it is. And uh, he's not afraid to make things personal. And I think you see that with this book. And I think you see Mm -hmm. that with your interview. Um, But there's, there's sort of this old guard news mentality of like, you just have to deliver the news straight. And I think I am all for objectivity, particularly on a network like CNN and not making it veer into the Fox News territory. But there's something to be said in this particular moment about this particular topic for grounding it. And I think Don's great talent is that he grounds things and he humanizes them and he isn't afraid to speak truth to power and he's a true original. And I think you, I'm, I'm sure you hear that in the interview and he has a big job. He hosts two hours, five nights a week on one of the biggest news platforms in the world and that he is a a black man who is doing that and talking about these issues on that platform is historic. And um, I'm just so excited to hear your whole chat. And I just think he is someone who everyone should listen to about this and buy the book and read it. It's important. I think it's uh, something that I think about all the time and yeah, he kind of gives you a playbook for that. And I think uh, you guys really nail it together and everyone should be really excited to listen to it. Well, you know, to your point, he was asked recently about, you know, journalists having opinions and point of views, points of view. I mean, it's we've talked about this on the podcast, you know, the, the degree to which uh, and this has been a, a sea change over the, just the course of our adulthood the way journalists are able to more be themselves and also be credible, you know, witnesses to the news. But he recently said, I think we have to stop pretending that journalists are white spaces between the black letters that are on the page. Journalists aren't inanimate objects, they're human beings, right? And he makes that all the more real and authentic and credible with with this book. I think he adds a, a, a layer of humanity that, you know, once you read it, you're never going to look at him on the screen again the same way, which is a good thing. But uh, but before we get to the interview, there's something you needed to tell me. Well, we have some other interviews to talk about off the podcast, and I just want to let our listeners know that uh, everyone has known Vanity Fair for its Oscar coverage and its famed Oscar party, and the Oscars are still happening this year, but our celebration of them is going to look a little different because our world looks very much different. So Vanity Fair is hosting this amazing three-day event. It's going to be a virtual charity event in April called Cocktail Hour Live. 
It's an award season celebration for a very good cause and will feature roundtable conversations, interviews, cast reunions, a closet tour. Yes, you heard that right. It's my dream come true. Trivia competitions, <laughs> the works. It's April 13th to the 15th. It's all online. It's people like Serena Williams in conversation with Michael B. Jordan, Glenn Close, Laura Dern, John Hamm, Paris Hilton, who's going to be talking to me, which is like literally dream come true. Andy Samberg, Jessica Alba, a million more people, a million more things. It's very, very exciting. A portion of the proceeds will go to the Motion Picture and Television Fund to help support COVID-19 relief efforts. I don't know if there's a better cause than that right now. You can buy your tickets. They're on sale starting March 25th, which is right now at vf.com slash live. Honestly, I'm going to be part of it, so I may be a little biased, but it just <laughs> sounds so fun and so Vanity Fair, and you're all sitting at home with nothing to do. We've watched all of Netflix. There is really like no original programming anymore. If Meghan Markle and Oprah Winfrey's interview gives us any indication, there is appetite for this kind of thing, and I promise you this will be... Just as juicy, fun, delicious. So buy your tickets, support the good cause, and and do yourself a little favor or give yourself a little treat and and tune into this. Sounds delicious. And it's uh, for the good of the world, which how often do you get to put those two things together? So that's wonderful. Basically never. So, so buy your tickets, listen to this great interview with Don Lemon, and we will see you back here next week. Let's go. In the 1980s and 90s, New York City needed a tough cop like Detective Louis Scarcella. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it in the world. He was the guy who made sure the worst killers were brought to justice. That's one version. This guy is a piece of shit. Derek Hamilton was put away from murder by Detective Scarcella. In prison, Derek turned himself into the best jailhouse lawyer of his generation. And the law was my girlfriend. This is my only way to freedom. Derek and other convicted murderers started a law firm behind bars. We never knew we had the same cop in the case. Scarcella. We got to show that he's a corrupt cop. They can go f*** themselves. I'm Steve Fishman. And I'm Dax Devlin-Ross. And this is The Burden. Listen to new episodes of The Burden starting March 19th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to hear episodes one week early and ad-free with exclusive content, subscribe to True Crime Clubhouse on Apple Podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. How is your social battery right now? Is it bursting with energy or drained? How do you recharge it? Have you ever reflected on those questions? Therapy can give you the self-awareness to build a social life that doesn't drain your battery. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Find your social sweet spot with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Hive today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot Slash Hive. Don Lemon, welcome to Inside the Hive. 
We're thrilled to have you here. You've written a book. I have. This is The Fire. What I say to my friends about racism. Is it right that it's like the uh, bestseller list right off the bat? It is. It debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Can you believe that? That's remarkable. But you do have a pretty good platform, <laughs> we must say, right off the top. I, I think that helps. But, I, you know, I, I think the content of the book is is very important. And well, I absolutely. I wasn't sure what the appetite would be for a book like this, a book about race or what have you. But to have a book like this debut at number one, I think, says a lot about where we are in our culture and um, the work that we need to do. And quite frankly, the work that people want to do. So I'm very optimistic. And this gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Well, I think you're, you know, one of the most fearless newscasters and cable for your honesty and candor as an African-American man in primetime. This book is really evidence of that. Oh, thank you. Um, there's something you write in this book that I want to uh, pluck out right off the bat, because I think it's it's something that I haven't heard said. And it's in some ways evidence of this fearlessness that I'm talking about. It, and this is what you write. It breaks my heart and burns my tongue to say it. But in 2016, Donald Trump was exactly the president we deserved and probably the president we needed in the way we need symptoms that alert you to a disease. With the election of a blatant white supremacist, the problem became palpable, impossible to ignore. Yeah. That's in some ways saying we, you know, we got what we deserved here. I mean, that's, um, it's an obvious statement. I'm surprised it's one we haven't heard more often, but you say it in this book. I mean. Well, I do. I, I said it. I said he was, he is probably the one, what did I say? The one we deserved and probably the one we needed. Listen, I think we would, most people, right, if you. If you look at the popular vote, if you look at uh, what, what, what has transpired over the past four or five years, I think most people will say uh, that they would have rather have had a, uh, a different experience when it comes to who was in the White House. But he pulled the wool off of our eyes and he exposed the um, racism that was lurking just beneath the surface in our culture and in our society. And not that it was so shocking to black people, to people of color, but I think it was shocking, quite frankly, to a lot of my white countrymen and my um, my white friends, just how bad it was. And I think it exposed to them, it showed them, revealed to them, I should say, um, the things that we had been saying, people, we as people of color, about the hidden and the underlying racism in this country. Donald Trump brought that right out in the open. He gave legitimacy to racists, he not only coddled them, but he became their imprimatur, right? He gave them um, legitimacy. And so you had racist, blatant racist, the, the, the comic book sort of racism that we talk about, you know, with the white supremacists, they were marching right out in the open with khakis and polo shirts rather than hiding in the old days hoods or what have you. So in, in Charlottesville and people just flat out saying and being do, saying racist things and doing racist things in public and doing it with vigor and with pleasure. So you mentioned earlier before we came online here that this book sort of poured out of you after the protest movements of last summer, the tragic deaths of George Floyd and others, and you were covering them for CNN, of course. But uh, you've also called it an ode to James Baldwin whose book, uh, The Fire Next Time, made an impact on you and, of course, millions of others. Um, and you start the book 
um, similarly as a letter, as a letter to your great nephew, mm -hmm. Trishad. Did the book idea start with this letter? It did. It, let's, I, I'll just go back just a little bit. During the Trump administration, People ask me to write books all the time, different publishers, different people, different agents like, oh, you, you, got, you should write a book. You should write a book. It's Trump. Everyone was capitalizing on books. I did not want to do that. I'm not political and I didn't want to be that closely allied with any administration, with this administration in particular. And so I didn't. And then uh, Charlottesville happened. And I was like, my gosh, this guy is just giving, you know, um, racist a platform. And then um, Ahmaud Arbery died. And I started covering it and he was, you know, shot to death with a shotgun in the middle of the street while he was jogging. Then Breonna Taylor happened and then shot in her in her bed. And then um, George Floyd happened and we all watched it. And I said, you know what, I've got to do something. I've got to say something. And we were all in lockdown in our homes because of quarantine. And I couldn't tell my family how much I loved them in person or show them in person or any affection or spend any not even quality time, any time with them at all. The book that has had the most profound impact on my life is The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And he started that book but with a letter to his nephew on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. So I would imagine he was feeling a certain kind of way about the 100th anniversary because he starts by saying, you know that we're celebrating um, 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon. And so as I was sitting there with no access to my family besides, you know, FaceTime or what have you, I was feeling guilty about the world that I was leaving to my great nephew, the world that they were inheriting. And I felt like I, had, I hadn't done enough to make it a better, safer, more beautiful world, more uh, unified world. And so um, I sat down and I started writing this letter to him. And what came out was that I hoped that he mastered his beauty and his blackness with an ease that I never was able to. And that's how the books, that's how it started. And then it just yeah. came out for that letter, the book just flowed. Yeah. Well, it's very emotional and very personal, this letter. And the book is both, you know, a review of where we've been as a nation, a kind of educational primer on thinking about racism and the events of the last few years. You also get into thinking about solutions, which interested me. One of the solutions, of course, is to educate ourselves, but the other is to think about next steps. And you write in here, you say, if we hope to make a tectonic shift in how this country functions on a daily household level, we have to take this fight back to where it began, money. So you, you frame it in terms of advertisers on CNN, for instance, who have a really good understanding of the economic reality of diversity. Can you talk about that? Well, I think people often, you know, give lip service to the idea of diversity because they think, oh, well, that's what you have to do in the society. You have to make a certain, you know, you have to make people happy and I've got to abide by, you know, this law and this and this sort of edict or whatever. But really, if you get right down to the bottom line, it's good for business. There are America is made up of many, many different types of people. And I think the portrayal of people uh, in the media sometimes often does not reflect what people are thinking in the way that they live their normal lives. As I walk down the streets of at least where I live, I see um, people usually of all different hues, especially in, in New York City or when I lived in Atlanta, even when I lived in Chicago. Now, I think people are still polarized. Um, you know, they may live in their own neighborhoods and, and there are uh, many places and groups of people in this country who just only live 
among people who look like them. And that's the problem. That's another question. I'll answer that with another, you know, with another answer to another question. But I think that the proof is in, if you look at the advertisers, advertisers know what sells, what sells. They know how people are living. They know what people are buying. They know when they put ads with a diverse group of people and in, even interracial or gay couples that their sales go up because that's what the majority of people in this country want. It's the minority of people who are out there being racist and bigoted. There are a lot of them. Don't get me wrong. There are a lot of them. But for the most part, the people who are not that way, and at least who don't want their kids to grow up in a world that is like that, they are in the majority. And those are the moms who, even if they have racial blind spots, or even if they live in a polarized place, even if they live in a, a, you know, an all white neighborhood, they don't want their kids to be bigots. And they will want to at least think, right, believe that it's okay for their kids to maybe grow up and marry someone who is of a different ethnicity or maybe even be gay or a member of the LGBT community. Like they would like because they want their kids to be happy and they want their kids to be to grow up in a happy, inclusive world. So I think at, at, on that level, on the, on the economic, monetary, capitalistic level, I think it's uh, important for people to realize that, hey, diversity and inclusion will make you money. Yeah. Well, there's an interesting anecdote in this book. It's one of my favorite quotes. The book is about your own experience going into a houseware store to buy a cutting board. And they ask you to step out on the sidewalk because of COVID restrictions. But you come back later and there's a white woman shopping inside and you realize you might have been profiled in some way. Yeah. And you try to think of a way to respond. And you write, in all matters of conflict, I strive to find a space of transactional grace, aiming for that negotiable middle ground between fuck you and full reparation, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is a funny line. But tell us that story and what you experienced and what the implications of it were. Well, I talk about, um, quite, uh, quite frankly, I talk about this paranoia that, um, that uh, black people, all black people, but mainly there's a certain kind for black men that we live in, that we live in. Um, it's like a race if you're, if you're um, a, a runner. There's a ready, set, go. And black people live in the set because they don't know what's going to pop off at any second if someone's going to treat them differently, if a police officer is going to pull them over, how that person, what the interaction will be like, if they're even safe with the people who are tasked with their safety. And if, you know, if it's a coworker or a boss or just someone on the street, and listen, even two weekends ago, not last weekend, but the weekend before, I was running on a running path and this woman was just walking, you know, not paying attention. And I, and I, I tried to negotiate it. And um, so I kind of slowed down and then she moved, eventually still moved back into my path because she wasn't paying attention. And I said, excuse me. And I, you know, because I didn't want to bump into her and I put my hand like, Okay, ma'am, I'm sorry. She looked at me. She goes, really? And then she just looked at me up and down. She goes, you're not even supposed to be here. You're not supposed to be jogging. And I said, it's a running path, lady. Oh but, you know, but her first thing was that I wasn't supposed to be there and I wasn't supposed to be running on a running path. But um, so, you know, we, we always live with that certain degree of paranoia in the set mode. And I wasn't going to include that particular little anecdote in the book, because I thought it was a little too privileged. And, um, uh, you know, my the editors, the publisher and the collaborator, they convinced me to put it in there because they thought it was important and they were right, that you show that these things can happen no matter your socioeconomic background, like no matter where you are, you know, if, if you're 
someone who is well-to-do, someone who is middle-class or someone who is poor, um, that we have those kinds of experiences and that for the most part, white people don't have to think about that ever. Yeah. And, um, and so we ended up returning it and everyone agreed who I spoke to, black, white, my fiance, who happens to be white, all like, just return it. Yeah. You don't, especially in this environment. Well, it's a small thing, but it speaks to a larger issue of how we react and respond to racism in daily life. And that was pretty civilized and negotiable middle ground, as you write, um, that transactional grace. And it seems to me that in addition to education, forgiveness is a part of the solution. I'm reminded mm -hmm. of the recent Smith College incident in the news recently in which a black student accused a janitor of racism. And it's unclear what really happened, but a lot of bad feelings were created all around. And it doesn't seem like, uh, you know, there's going to be any peace made there. But uh, one of the things you write in the book is the moment we skew towards censorship or cancel culture, we lose something of our most precious liberty, freedom of speech. And I'm not about that. Do you think that cancel culture right. is a thing or is it just a political talking point? Well, it can be a combination, I think. Um, I, and I don't know enough about Smith College to speak with authority. I've, I've read a couple of things, but I'm just not, I'm not well versed in it. But I will say that uh, it is, I, I don't like the, you know, little, you know, catchphrases like cancel culture, right? Because then it's used to, and people can easily sort of categorize things that are, that are very nuanced. And what we're talking about here is something that's very nuanced. Um, I do believe in accountability. And I think a lot of what's going on is accountability. People are, are being held accountable and they cannot just say something bigoted or racist or insensitive or inappropriate uh, with impunity anymore. Like they can just, you know, they can't just say something and go, oh, it's my First Amendment right. People are held accountable now. And so you have you have, do have freedom of speech. You're free to say whatever it is that you want. But you also must suffer the consequences if you say something that is um, that is. Awful, that is insulting, that's bigoted or racist now. Do I believe that, you know, you should be going back into people's lives years ago for something they did 10, 15, 20 years ago? No, I mean, you know, come on. But I, I think in each case should be handled on, it, on its individual merits. And we should take everything individually because it's not all, it's not a one size fits all. And so I think that, but we must allow people grace if we're having conversations and what we're supposed to do is state our viewpoints talk about our insecurities, talk about a path forward and how we get there. I think you have to allow people grace in the conversation and in the act of trying to do the right thing. And we just can't say, well, you just don't, you know, I just, oh my gosh, or whatever. Um, and I understand it's insulting. I have to deal with it in, in my personal life all the time. It is infuriating sometimes, but you must allow people grace. But then after, but then you can, I think you can only allow people so many times, and then you have to let them do the work on their own. What, also within that grace, I say, there's, what white people must do is they should listen, but they shouldn't expect black people to teach them everything about race. You shouldn't, it's just as it's not the responsibility of a woman to constantly teach her oppressor about sexism or about harassment and so on. So. Yeah, you understand what I mean, right? Yeah, like I do. It, it gets frustrating sometimes because an adult, by the time you're an adult in America, there are certain things that you should know and there are certain experiences that you, you should have and there's a certain curiosity that you should have had about life that would lead you to some sort of common sense 
about the racial issues in this country. And after you're a certain age, it's really difficult for a person of color to have to explain that to you because you're a grown person and you should know better. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically, I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. point, um, I was reading your interview with Time Magazine recently, and they tried to find something controversial that you said in 2013 when you outlined um, five ways to fix our community, right? You were advising young black people to stop using the N-word and stop wearing saggy pants, which at the time was likened to something Bill Cosby might say. And it was just this idea of bootstrapping. And, and reading your book, it did seem that your thinking has grown since then. Do you feel like you changed your point of view? No, I don't feel like I changed my point of view. I think the two, I don't, I don't see an inconsistency because you can teach people about the realities of reality, yeah. right? And then you can also want people to take responsibility for their own lives, to be able to achieve, uh, um, go higher and do better. So uh, of course people can evolve in their thinking. And I think, listen, uh, if you're a living human being and you, you know, I'm not the same person I was yesterday, right? Um, there are certain things that I think about and that I and I say, well, you know, perhaps this is a better way of thinking about it, or I gain more knowledge and information about something, and therefore I'm allowed to change my mind or um, or evolve on on whatever my thinking might be about something. But I think the two, one doesn't have to cancel right out the other. You can still want people to take responsibility for their own lives. You can still want people to have better habits. You can still want people to um, overcome this their situation regardless of where they were planted and put on this planet or whatever neighborhood they were put in or what have you. But then you can also understand the realities of like just complete bootstrapping. And so people do need help. And so I think people always take things to an extreme. If you say something, let me offer you some advice. That means that that's the only way I'm telling people that they can live. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. So you can be someone who was born in an underprivileged neighborhood but still want to have pride and responsibility about where you live and who you are and where you want to go in life. All of those things can coexist. And so are there certain things now that I would uh, rather elevate and educate people on rather than another thing? Yes, that I would prioritize over another thing? Absolutely. As I have been in this whole media landscape now in prime time for you know almost a decade now, has it been seven years? My God, I'm getting old. Um, older. Um, are there, have I, have I found a w better ways of communicating? Absolutely. Have I found better ways of getting people to understand what I'm saying and what I want to get across? Absolutely. 
So I, I think that's you're seeing all of that. Not that I've necessarily completely changed my mind about any of those things that I said. I sure. may not say them the same way that I did back then, but I do think that a lot of it is good advice. And have I evolved? Absolutely. Am I always looking out for my people, meaning black people? Absolutely, because that's who I am. I'm a black American. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I had Charles Blow on this podcast a couple of months ago. Uh-oh. He wrote a book. Yeah, you know, the, <laughs> I know. the Devil I You Know, know A Black Power Manifesto. Um, and he has, you know, uh, an interesting point of view. And part of it is back to the economics. He thinks that, you know, his main thesis is that um, young black Americans should move out of the north and back to the south and try to uh, consolidate black political and economic power in the south with Georgia right. as kind of the model. Right. But, but part of what he says is that he, he's very skeptical and I would say even cynical about the concept of multiculturalism. It's a dream that didn't work out. The idea of progress. And I wondered, you know, your book takes a different point of view. You're more optimistic about the fact that we can all figure out how to get along again, you know, and not be so divided. But he makes a point, for instance, that uh, when white people talk about diversity, including liberal white people, what they really mean is 51 percent white people and a mix of everybody else. And this is what makes him skeptical about white people's vision of multiculturalism. But the alternative is a little bit of like a almost like a uh, it's identity politics taken to an extreme where you are, are no longer even seeing integration as a as a, uh, a workable thing. I mean, have you considered that point of view that the more we're advocating for our identities, the less we're able to want to get along or motivated to get along? I think it's tough because I see what Charles is saying. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily, I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily agree or disagree in, in you know, fully um, with what he's saying. I understand what he's talking about, about, about migrating back to the South because most African-Americans, you know, from the beginning of this country, at least the starting of this country um, before reconstruction lived in the South. And then you had the great migration North. They were escaping slavery. The South is a whole different place now for people of color. And perhaps many times it's even, um, there are more opportunities for prosperity there. And there's more interaction and upward mobility. Um, And one is not um, uh, economically tied to um, a place because, they're not so economically tied to a place because they don't have to pay so much to live there, right? In New York City, we call it house poor. Right. You can you can't afford to move because you can't afford the deposit and you can't afford to to the car and you can't do whatever because New York City is so expensive to live. You don't have those. It's different parameters in the South. So I understand it on that particular level. But I believe in this grand experiment of multiculturalism. And I think that we can get along. I don't believe that we, you know, we all have to go to our mutual corners and black people should live down south and white people should live up north and whatever. But people want to do that. That's their own business. I'm not discounting that. But I am more optimistic and I am more hopeful. And I see the events that have happened over the last couple of years, especially as the last gasp for white supremacy and the last right. uh, gasp for a lack of multiculturalism, uh, because that is just where the country is going. Whether it's 
you know, someone who's fighting, who, who is um, at the Capitol during an insurrection, or whether it's someone like Charles Blow who says, yeah, I want my people to go back south and get to learn and love each other and, and, and um, understand and live in their full blackness. The demographics of the country by 2040 or 2045, we're going to be a minority majority country, regardless of where we live. And so we're all going to have to learn to get together because that's what, like, what our country will be. The majority of people in this country will no longer just be white people. It'll be people of color. And so I hope that I am healthy enough and that I live long enough to be able to see that happen and to be able to experience it. I am very optimistic about that. And I think the way that we're going to do that is not by segregating ourselves, but by having relationships with people who don't look like us. Right. Because when you do that, then you get to see other people's humanity. You get to experience other people's humanity. And it is harder for you to treat them as other. It is harder for you to discriminate against someone who you see as a friend or someone who is another, just another human being. Right. Yeah. Today, I see that the unemployment numbers are down to the lowest since the pandemic hit. And um, Trump is out of office. Economic numbers are looking better. I wonder whether some of the tensions in the country will cool and whether you think that will help heal some of the racial tensions. I think it will. But listen, I think there's always, of course it will. I mean, you know, when people are able to afford their family to, you know, the easiest degree, whatever that is, I think people are happier and um, I think people get along. And then, but you also have to remember, you have someone at the top who's trying to unify the country, who's not trying to divide who's not lying to people. Listen, politicians are politicians. So, you know, let's just establish a baseline here. You know, how politicians conduct themselves. But I really don't think that we could have had a more decent person in the, in the Oval Office at this point, regardless of what you think about his politics. And Joe Biden is a uniter. And I think much to the chagrin of um, even progressives and liberals, because they're saying the right doesn't, you know, they don't want to work with you. Why do you keep trying to work with the right? Why do you keep trying to be bipartisan? They don't want bipartisan. Do your thing. Get the agenda. Do what we want. And yet and still, Joe Biden is still trying to work with the other side. But I think what he's realizing now is that bipartisanship is what the majority of the people in this country want, not what the majority of, of, of politicians in Washington want. So I think the pendulum always swings far. And so I want people to think about it in this manner. I understand that it is uh, uh, things are not often always fair, right? I live in a world and have where things weren't always fair for me, even more so than the majority culture. So sometimes when the pendulum swings too far, uh, people, let me just say this. People said the same thing about the Me Too movement for women, that the pendulum has swung too far, whatever. And, 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 and you ask any woman and they would say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Think about the alternative. Think about how, where the pendulum was before. Right. And I think the same thing when it comes to race in this country, if you look at the pendulum as slavery and then you look at the pendulum that, oh, my gosh, someone uh, received, um, uh, you know, a harsh talking to or was suspected of um, having a, some sort of racial bias, are they equal? And so sometimes, it, you know, I'm not saying that it's, I, I like it. I wouldn't want to be on the other side of it. But we have to we have to prioritize. We have to get our priorities straight and realize that in order for there to be change in society, some mistakes are going to be made. And, you know, sadly, we're going to have to live with it. It's not a science. Yeah, it's, not it's a messy. Wonder, it's not 100 percent <laughs> mathematics. 
It is messy. And my heart goes out to people who get caught up in it, of course. And as I, as I have said in the beginning, I think everything should be judged on an individual basis. Yeah. But we have to, let's look at the reality. Let's prioritize here, considering the history of this country when it comes to racism. There yeah. has to be a racial reckoning. We've got to fix it. And mistakes are going to be made in the fixing of it. How do you think Jay Leno did? Did you see that this week? I didn't. You know, we had a we had a Jay Leno um, story in the show last night, and we didn't get to it because of the news. And so we're doing it today. And I'm actually reaching out to Jay because I know him. Jay is a friend of mine, so I want to read more about it. I know that he made some um, some jokes that were insensitive to Asians in the past, mm-hmm. and so he is he's apologizing for that. Uh, but then I think not apologizing about something about cancel culture. So again, I don't really know enough about it. And I would know more if I wasn't sitting in front of a Zoom camera all day promoting yeah. a book. But, um, but actually, after we're done with this conversation, I'm going to read about it. And I'm actually going to reach out to Jay to see if he'll come on the show. Well, what's interesting about it is Jay Leno for just for years and years represented just the most mainstream possible comedian. He reached out across into the broad middle of America in his comedy. And he's made this decision to kind of publicly, you know, get out ahead of whatever he had said in the past and, and try to apologize for it. I thought it was an interesting moment. I don't know if it's a game changing thing, but it's like, uh, in a way he was getting out in front of something, I suppose. But, well, you know, Jimmy Fallon did the same thing. Jimmy Fallon did the same thing. Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel both apologized for doing blackface in the past. Um, and I, I respect them for doing it. And, I, and Jimmy Fallon even went a step further. He asked me on his show and he asked people who deal with issues of race on his show to have a conversation, a dialogue that was not scripted. He did not know what we were going to say. He didn't know what questions that we were going to ask of him. We didn't know what questions he was going to ask of us. And he didn't know if, you know, if people were going to castigate him or, or take him to task for it. And I thought what Jimmy Fallon did was very brave and was the right thing to do, the right way to handle it is to do it out in the open, full transparency and not like the royal family saying, oh, let's do all of this behind closed doors. No, that's not what that's not what we need right now. We need people to have this conversation so that it can be used as as an example for other people to be able to do it and to take the fear out of the process and and then to see that people are doing the work. Jimmy Fallon did the work. Jimmy Kimmel did the work. Fallon did, did more publicly and is still willing to publicly talk about it. That says a lot. And I think if, if Jay Leno does that, then I applaud him. So let me uh, go to a lighter note and conclude by pointing out in your book, in your acknowledgments, you thank uh, Tim Malone. And you say, soon to be Tim Malone Lemon. Um, uh, I don't know. I guess it's a, it's a form of a wedding announcement. Uh, can you tell us more about, uh, about that? What do you mean? It's a form? I mean, we're engaged. We've been engaged since yeah. 2019. Um, but we look at 2020 as a year that didn't happen. So when people say last year, I think of 2019. So we've been, as far as I'm concerned, engaged a year. Um, <laughs> but we still plan on getting married. Um, I told him, told him I didn't want to get married in the middle of COVID. I didn't want to plan a wedding in the middle of COVID because 
I just didn't think it was fair to people. I, and, no. um, and everybody I know who planned a wedding kept pushing it back and pushing it back and pushing it back. And then once they, you know, you were allowed to have enough people, people were afraid to go. And so they would invite 200 people and then 50 would show up, you know, at the last minute. And then you pay all this money for a caterer and blah, 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 blah. So, and I just got, I have a friend who pushed his wedding back an entire year. And then literally two days ago, two or three days ago, I got an email from him and his fiance saying that um, she and him had decided to cancel the big wedding and just have a wedding with his close family members because out of respect for the health and safety of their friends and loved ones. And I was like, that is exactly the right thing to do. So I thought, I think it's pretty selfish when people planned and had weddings in the middle of a pandemic. I really do. Sure. And do you have a wedding date set? When most of the country is vaccinated and most of the country is open and we can start planning things without worrying about numbers yeah. and COVID and masks and all of that, then we'll have a wedding date. And yeah. I think that, I think, you know, after all this, you realize what's really important. I mean, I still have to, look, it's his decision as well. I really do think that we're going to have something a little bit more intimate and a little bit more personal as far as wedding ceremony, even if it's just us. But then there'll be a, like a, a casual party for friends and family um, where it'll just be a sort of informal celebration. That That's that's kind of how we roll. I, it doesn't need to be fancy where everyone gets dressed up in tuxedos. But Vanity Fair is invited to come and take pictures. And if they would like to have you exclusive, <laughs> I will take the, you know, if they want to take part in the venue and pay for it and get the exclusive, then I will let them do that. I, I well, will be... We'll... We'll take that to the uh, powers that be and uh, and see what they say about that. But I like your I like your thinking. Um, listen, uh, this is the fire. What I say to my friends about racism is a really, really personal book. I learned a ton from it. Um, not just that you were engaged to be married, and uh, I feel like you know because of the platform we talked about at the beginning. The, because you're in prime time on CNN and that you're able to get this in the bestseller list and have people read it, um, you know, it's part of the solution. It's part of the solution to, to our problems is to have people be educated and to know about this stuff and to know how you feel about your great nephew, you know? So um, thanks for coming on to this show and talking to us about your book. I really appreciate you guys doing this. And I, I do think, as I said in the beginning, I think it's going to be really great for the country it's a book. It's a, a unifying book. It's not divisive. It's not blaming. Um, it's really about bringing people together and having us all coexist and move towards the promise of this country, which is a more perfect union, not perfect, but more perfect. So, yeah, um, I thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it. And that's our show this week. I want to thank Don Lemon of CNN for coming on Inside the Hive. And thanks to my co-host, Emily Jane Fox, our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the good people at Cadence 13, our production team. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to Inside the Hive. Go to radio.com or Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit subscribe. Put a review in if you'd like. Please support our advertisers the way they support us. And we will see you next week.
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.